Hi, everyone. My name is Kevin Scorsone, and I am the Manager of Patient-Centered Initiatives and Legislative Affairs at ENCODA. Today's special legislative podcast episode, which is a special edition of the PQI podcast, will feature John Driscoll. John Driscoll has decades of experience in healthcare strategic planning, physician network development, payer relations, prepaid managed care systems, and value-based contracting. Mr. Driscoll is a former Washington State Representative, where he served as the Vice Chair of the House Healthcare and Wellness Committee and sponsored key legislation, including an expand primary care medical residencies in Spokane, Washington, elimination of pre-existing condition restrictions for organ transplants, and expanded protection for healthcare providers from unfair insurance company practices. He was named 2010 Washington State Medical Association Legislator of the Year and the 2010 Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association Legislator of the Year. John is currently the Senior Operations Consultant for the American Oncology Network. All right, John, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, You are, oh, thank you, John, for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to be with us. First up, I want to talk to you a little bit about your legislative career um, sort of take us back and and highlight some of the things that were so important um, for you during your time uh, in the Washington State Legislature. One of my biggest takeaway, my my brief legislative career was was how complex public policy advocacy is, and as a legislator, uh, I, I wanted to be you know, fully informed on every issue that came before us, uh, the, the for and against side, I tried to really um, learn the issues, but I realized quickly the overwhelming amount of legislative activity and uh, everybody wanting to talk to you and, and working in 15 minute increments, getting huge downloads on complicated subjects. It's a complete rat race. And while stimulating, um, it's uh, it's it's hard to stay focused on 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 your cause, so to speak. So so when I um, left the legislature in uh, 2010, I like to tell everybody my my experience prior to that, my three and a half years of uh, deciding to run for office, learning how to uh, run a campaign, and and how to. Eat, you know, successfully become elected. And then the, the job itself as a legislature, legislator, um, I learned a lot. I, I tell people I got three PhDs in three and a half years at my expense, uh, public policy, healthcare policy, and everything is, as you know, is, is complex. But um, what I learned after my tenure is, is uh, I really am a subject matter, not expert, but very focused on one particular thing. How, how do we create better healthcare for patients, better access, better quality, um, and obviously reasonable costs. Um, and my, my learning, and this sort of transitions, Kevin, into your next question, uh, transitioning into legislative ad- advocacy, um, I, I returned to my former career in, in healthcare administration after leaving the legislature. And uh, I knew the game by that point. And I 
care deeply about the experience that cancer patients have um, clinically as well as financially and uh, all, all the things that happen when, when one has cancer. And I was able to very quickly, because of my three PhDs, sort of um, you know, understand and, and uh, become very active in the state of Washington with all sorts of uh, oncology-specific uh, issues, including things such as um, pharmacy regulations and NIOSH. But my, my big focus has always been, how do we create access and affordable care for anybody who has a cancer diagnosis? And uh, that's how I've focused my activity over the last eight, 10 years. Um, and it's, a, as we all know, a, a tough subject in and of itself. Uh, the costs of healthcare keep rising. And I still believe, as I said earlier, that, that many, many of our elected officials at all levels, they want what I want. They want access. They want affordability. They want that. But they need to be educated. Um, they, you know, and, and they need to devote time. And that's where, you know, our our, our job at ENCODA and what we can do for our patients, um, creating relationships with, with elected officials, understanding uh, you know, how, how to do that. Um, it's, it's very important, but before they can act and, and uh, advocate eloquently, they, they do need to understand how uh, you know, a, a cancer diagnosis of any sort, how does it impact the family, the person, the healthcare system itself. How, how do we provide efficient and, and high quality care? Those sorts of issues. Yeah, that's that's great, John. And I think this is a great way to sort of segue into my next question. <clears throat> and that is, how important is it for patients, but also physicians to know that their opinion on the healthcare situation inside the legislature is valued um, and that the work that they could do there being their own advocates could go a long way in the legislature and with uh, the progression of legislation. And I think sometimes that point gets lost because we see legislation that hangs around for years and we get frustrated with legislation not progressing. But how important is it for patients, physicians, pharmacists to be advocates and go to the state legislature and talk to their representatives to try to move things along in a positive direction. Kevin, that, that is the most important thing any of us can do, um, particularly physicians. One of the things I observed in my time in the legislature was every elected you know, a, a member of the House or Senate, um, we, we give floor speeches constantly. Whenever there is a healthcare related bill that we were considering, what I saw right away is every single person in that legislative body would want to quote a physician in, in their uh, floor speeches. They, they um, would go right down to, you know, I talked to my doctor the last time I was in to have an exam, and, and here's what my doctor thinks. What I, what I saw right away is, is the voice and opinion of physicians is really important. And I extend that further to mid-levels, pharmacists, nurse practitioners, all of those voices are, are hugely important. And physicians 
swing a lot of weight as far as you know advocacy. And they also are not as active and present in the political arena as I think they could be because all of us have a lot of credibility. We go, we go to um, you know, get to know our elected officials and right away we know what we're talking about and they don't. So, so they wanna learn, we can bring a lot of credibility. And, and, and the, the greatest thing I've, I've realized over you know, right up until now, my legislative work and everything else is that my sense in, in America today is who's standing up for the patient, who's got the back of the patient, who's, who's thinking about the things we think about here. And what I've realized is our, the healthcare providers are, are literally the last people that can stand up and advocate for their individual patients. And I see it every day in my, in my work. Uh, as as you guys do, it's um, authorization for treatments or it's formulary issues or whatever. But hospitals, insurance companies, government, everybody is so focused on on cost reduction. It has clogged up the delivery system, and it adds cost, in my opinion. And and as I said we in healthcare have the strongest voice with our elected officials. They have their own troubles, of course, in that there's not enough money and time to solve everything we would love to have solved, but we have a strong voice. We just have to use it. We have to show up and um, physicians on down, the more we can be present and visible with our elected officials, they will turn to us for answers to their questions if you create solid relationships with them. You can help them be successful. And that's always important when you're working with an elected official. All right, that makes that makes sense. And uh, before we get into some specific issues, and I want to touch on those, I want to I want to talk a little bit about collaboration. Um, you know, what is the value of collaboration? For example, John has been a tremendous asset to me, starting the government affairs department, the legislative affairs department here at ENCODA. Um, and he has been one of these people that has collaborated with ENCODA to bring great content uh, surrounding the legislature and surrounding legislative affairs. So expanding on that, John, the value of collaboration, what it means for someone like you to collaborate, but also other organizations to be able to collaborate together to bring the best possible outcomes for patients and sort of put egos aside and just do what's best for patients. And I think that also translates um, inside the legislature to the Democrats and the Republicans. How important is it for us to try to get to a point where we can all collaborate to do what's best for patients? Yeah, that, that is a very good question. And um, like everything else in life, collaboration is, is mandatory. You, you cannot, Go out and solve all the problems all by yourself. So, so in a, in a legislative body of, of any sort, um, to successfully run a bill, for example, um, a lot of a lot of a, uh, organizations, the, the, the government itself, elected officials, they all have a, a cause and an, and an agenda. But the question always becomes in in, in legislative activity. Is this a narrow issue or is it an issue that impacts a lot of people? Uh, that's always one of the first questions. Building 
coalitions to move legislation, building coalitions to uh, achieve funding. Um, you can't go it alone. So what I, what, what we all see is, is uh, in political activities, collaboration means you may end up having a common cause. Let's use uh, compounding as an example. Um, when they want to regulate compounding activities, who, who does that affect? And, and I've been involved in, in a legislative activity around that. And I was, I was surprised when I first jumped into it. Um, jails often have nurses and do some amount of compounding. Hospitals do lots of compounding. Doctors offices to some extent. And, and what I learned in, in that um, example I'm using is, uh, the state of Washington was trying to impose some fairly strict, um, expensive uh, uh, employee safety and patient safety measures related to compounding. And, and what I discovered is in order to kind of work on that bill and make it work for everybody, one size does not fit all. And, and we hear that constantly, but that's that's legislation. So the coalition we formed to work on uh, compounding laws included jailers from county jails and included uh, nursing homes. We, we had to go out and seek out those that may be impacted by, by those sorts of things. And, and what you end up with, it takes some work, but what you end up with is many, many vo more voices. And that's really important. Uh, voting decisions are made based on the impact and, and I remember myself thinking you know when I when I vote the, these laws we're creating they they affect seven eight million people and and I may never know the individual who benefits from a particular law but just to give you one example that I'm very proud of I uh, before the Affordable Care Act we had very strict controls on who's eligible for organ transplants and there is an obscure law that allowed one of our state insurance companies to refuse a liver transplant of a critically ill um, man who lived in Spokane, low-income person, who had he not gotten a liver transplant was going to die. Um, so, so here's an example of, of, of a piece of legislation I'm very, very proud of, um, thinking, as I said, about my my vote affects seven or eight million individuals. I don't know the outcome of this, um, you know, that, that particular law, but uh, in this case, there was a low-income individual in Spokane who was denied a life-saving liver transplant due to an obscure law that an insurance company was able to uh, invoke that allowed them to deny the transplant. The man was critically ill and, and, and would have likely passed away in the, within six months. Um, we were able to change the law. We changed that law that year before the Affordable Care Act came up and, and eliminated that little clause that allowed insurance companies to refuse to pay for a transplant. Um, during the course of running that bill, I met three or four other families that were affected by this law. And sadly, those families lost their loved ones, um, but we changed the law. And so my takeaway from that was, wow, seven, eight million people out there, I just saved a life. I will never know that person, 
I will never know their story, but I know my law, uh, the law we passed um, will allow somebody to have a, an organ transplant they may not have gotten previously. Like I said, one of my proudest moments in that I saved a life and I can't tell you whose it is, but I'm sure I did. At least that's what I want to think. So. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a powerful message right there. And I think, I, I think those are the stories that more people need to hear because I think it provides not only encouragement, but inspiration that the work that you potentially can do um, at the legislative level can be impactful, but also leads to victories. Um, I want to talk specifically on a couple things, John, and this is sort of an open-ended question for you, but you've spent years, like you said, in healthcare uh, and in the state legislature. What do you think right now, or what is the one thing you're focused on primarily for patients to better improve their experience. Um, obviously, ENCODA is an oncology organization focusing on cancer, but this could be a widespread issue for all patients. I'd like to sort of leave it open-ended for you, but what is the one thing um, that you look at that is the biggest hurdle for patients right now? That That is a... <clears throat> frankly, an overwhelming question because our, our patients have so many hurdles. Their disease process is, is the most important hurdle that they have to deal with. And, and the way I look at this is, is my job, our job, all, all healthcare providers, uh, patient support networks, families, all of that. I, the way I look at this is the patient needs to devote all of their time and energy on focus and focus on dealing with their disease and the complicated treatments and, and all of those sort of things. The rest of us need to step in and be that patient's advocate. We all need to pay attention, um, so to speak, um, including if, if any of your loved ones ends up in a hospital for any reason, make sure that they have somebody with them at all times as much as possible because mistakes are made in hospitals frequently. Um, I'm, and I'm not bashing hospitals at all. It's just a busy, complicated place. And having a, a family member with you is, is, I think, really important. The patient's experience, um, and, and I know of course, plenty of cancer patients, from the moment they're first told they might have cancer and have to enter into our um, oncology delivery system, it's, it's frightening for them and it's slow and inefficient. So, so what one of my passions clinically is, is how do we move as rapidly as possible from a suspected diagnosis to actual treatment? And because of all the barriers that are out there, uh, insurance barriers, um, meaning pre-authorizations, uh, access to you know, certain types of treatments, uh, you know, approvals, all those sort of things, it delays care. Um, there, there's things that delay care that I think we could do better about um, the, the uh, evaluation phase, so to speak, when you're working up a patient, um, getting your biopsy results back rapidly, those sort of things. So, so a lot of my focus 
in all of healthcare is how do we streamline the handoff from one, one uh, provider to another? Um, cancer patients in a community setting end up working with, you know, who knows, six to 12 different specialists. Um, they're going to labs and imaging places and they're, they're just run around all over the place. So how can we make that experience more cohesive? And that's a two-edged sword um, in that we can't automate healthcare. Uh, and, and one of my fears with um, the, the future for patients and all of us is, is, is healthcare is not one size fits all either. We're driving towards personalized medicine and all things, but but the healthcare system is driving towards consolidation and uh, um, concentration of services, which is creating delays and and uh, you know difficulties in access. And I haven't said anything about cost yet. I'm, right. I'm talking about our delivery system. The the costs are horrendous. Before the Affordable Care Act, when I was involved in the state of Washington with, um, you know, how, how do you create affordable health care? At that time, over half of all of the personal bankruptcies in America were related to health care costs. And, and I've had to deal with that my entire life, no matter what specialty. Uh, we, we bankrupt patients that are not well insured, um, and it's difficult. Um, how do you how do you not ruin people's financial lives and ruin their future? And that's the hardest thing I think we're faced with. Um, I've seen patients refuse treatment because they don't want to um, burden their family with the cost. Those are the saddest situations I encounter. Is, is I know we have a solution for a patient, and they're declining the treatment due to affordability. I, I wish that weren't true. Let me ask you a question, John. I think, you know, the issue of affordable health care always comes up around election time. But is this one of these issues that doesn't get enough traction? I mean, I feel like sometimes we just bring it up around the presidential elections. It even gets lost sometimes at the midterm level or the uh, state and local level. Um, is this something that, you know, should be the focus for advocacy groups and groups like ENCODA to really focus on moving forward. I mean, I think ENCODA has done a very good job of it, putting out uh, the copay accumulator information, which was the first of its kind in the world of oncology. But should this be the focus for these groups moving forward, this focus on getting patients not only access to quality care, but the ability to get the medication that their physician wants them to be on? Kevin, I, I think that's that's where our um, our industry could have the biggest impact. It's a huge rock to push uphill. But the uh, you know how how do we think about creating affordable health care, for example? I, I mentioned uh, the the cost of large health care systems versus community based care. Um, the, there's a lot of published literature out there that indicates in spite of hospitals, for example, being able to rely on 340B and purchase uh, 
oncology medications at the best price possible in America. They then take that low cost purchase and turn it into a high cost treatment. Um, the, I believe the uh, recent statistics, a, a course of care in the hospital system versus community-based oncology providers, um, overall costs might be as much as 50% greater when one is in a um, hospital-based clinical setting versus community-based. I don't think we talk enough about that to elected officials and the public in general. The cost of care is not at the forefront of a lot of our conversations. My my belief is that you know, why why is that why why do the why do those cost cost differentials even start to begin with? What I learned back to my legislative career is that the hospital industry, the uh, medical insurance industry, pharmaceutical companies, they have huge armies of lobbyists and they're uh, more likely to be treated favorably in a, in a legislative body. If a hospital walks in and says, we're, you know, we're at risk of going bankrupt unless we get some government support here, that impacts an entire community. It gets everybody's attention. Um, th those kinds of issues are, are sort of what we're up against, I think. How do, how do we form our little army of advocates in the face of large entrenched organizations who wanna continue their funding streams? How do we stand up with them? Like, you know, alongside of them when, it, when, when that fits and, and, and uh, in, in educating the public about options in community healthcare. Um, we have to do both at the same time. We have a lot of common issues, but when I think about how do we create the best delivery system for patients, there's a lot of incentives out there within our um, reimbursement systems that, that I think tend to favor um, large institutions over um, community-based healthcare. Um, those are the most costly settings. And, and as I said, I think we, you know, as, as advocates could have a huge impact if we, if our voices were as strong as uh, hospital lobbyists, for example, if we could educate the world that, you know, when it comes to cost and quality and, and uh, personalized care, you don't get that in a, in a huge institution that is, trying to care for thousands of patients. You get that in your own community. Health outcomes are better if you stay home. Um, you know, how do you build that level of competence and expertise everywhere? And I know our, our uh, you know, pharmacists, physicians, everybody in our community-based world, we're all capable of doing that. We can, we can deliver the care. And we should tell everybody that as loudly and as often as we're able to. Exactly. Yeah, I echo that statement there about, you know, being loud, being vocal, being able to let the patients and the groups know that we're there for them. Um, John, I, I'm, I'm cognizant of your time. It's a great conversation. I have two more questions for you. Um, one, we've talked about a lot of the 
problems facing uh, healthcare and the world of oncology, but in your eyes, in your opinion, is there reason to be hopeful um, moving forward um, for oncology patients um, at the legislative level? And maybe why do you feel that way? You know, hopefully um, there's some optimism, but what do you think about, about the whole situation moving forward? Well, th thanks for uh, shifting gears and asking that question. Uh, my, what I do for a living is, is I'm a problem solver. So, so yeah, I, I, I tend to think about, you know, how do we fix things and, and uh, don't talk so much about what's good. I'll tell you what I am most excited about in the uh, world of cancer care is the amazing clinical advances we're achieving month after month, year after year. And the, the face of cancer is not this scary monster it might have been 40 years ago, 20, maybe even five years ago for some diseases. Um, and I think that's the good news in, in oncology. And again, I'm not convinced that patients and the general public really appreciate those advances. And I think one of our jobs is to um, you know, help the public take the fear out of cancer, talk about the uh, survivability rates that we're achieving nowadays in, in a whole lot of different cancers. That, that is exciting to me, the scientific advances. Right alongside of that is everything that comes out is 10 times more expensive than what it replaces. Um, but I see us continually um, at, at all levels of government trying to push the cost down. What, what I fear is that they may, um, they may be using a big sledgehammer that has bad side effects, but, uh, but how do you push the cost down? That, that's the ultimate key. And I'm actually optimistic. If, if you look at, um, in, in my own career, before the Affordable Care Act in the state of Washington, 20% uh, of uh, adults did not have any form of medical insurance at all. We've made a huge leap forward in that, in that arena. Um, nowadays, uh, as, as the Affordable Care Act has matured and, uh, and times have changed, including our most recent bout with COVID and all that, patients' eligibility to get on uh, affordable insurance plans, uh, you know, assistance from the state when they need it. There's a lot better access now to insurance products but does that really translate down to access to the doctor's office? Does your hospital take a certain type of insurance? Um, and, and I see those are great opportunities legislatively also, you know, how do we make sure that the, the term is called cherry picking? How do we make sure that every provider and every, um, you know, every, every healthcare entity has a level playing field? You know, if, if I can go one place, I should be go, able to go other places. Uh, do you accept my insurance or not? I think we, we're making a lot of headway. It's slow, but I think there is a lot of hope that we can continue that to open up access so that individual provider groups uh, don't necessarily have the opportunity to um, 
sort of pick and choose who they want to provide care for. Right. Yeah. That. Thanks for that, John. That makes that makes sense and great great insight there. And my final question, sort of to end on a on a fun note, um, we've been asking uh, the guests of our legislative podcast um, if you could sit down and have dinner with one person throughout history. Um, doesn't have to be somewhat related to uh, the legislature or government or or that, even though we have had some answers like that. Who would be the one person throughout history that you'd like to sit down and have dinner with and pick their brain a little bit about maybe their life and their career? Mm, boy, that, that, is a, that is a fun question and my mind wanders because I'm I'm very much into history and uh, even archaeology going back 5,000 years. So, so my first thought when you ask the question is Thomas Jefferson, the, the, and, and if not him, the, the founders of, of democracy, John Locke. I would love to, um, Thomas Jefferson, in my view, was a very enlightened and progressive person in his time and even to this day. Um, and I would love to go to Monticello and sit down and have a, a, a meal with uh, Mr. Jefferson because he had, he, he, was, he was a universal learner. He, he, his library, is, as you may know, was donated to the US government and it became the Library of Congress. He's, I think, one of the most well-educated people I've ever heard of, and he did it himself. So, so that's your answer, Thomas Jefferson. I, I think that's a fascinating answer. I think it's, uh, I'll try to pull some strings and see if I can get all the founding fathers there for you. But if I can- That'd be even uh, better. But, uh, yeah. but you know, my experience with my own legislative career, I think if you get a room full of founding fathers together, you might uh, have disagreements and uh, uh, differences of opinions, perhaps much like Democrats and Republicans these days. True. But, uh, but yes, it would be stimulating, no question. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, John, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to join us on this special edition of the PQI podcast in our legislative interview series. So um, I thank you again. Um, personally, I appreciate everything you've done for me and your collaboration with ENCODA on various legislative initiatives. So thank you for your time and thank you for your insight on all these very important issues. And thank you, Kevin, for inviting me. And, and my, my last word to our audience is uh, don't hold back. It, it takes some time, it takes some commitment, but the more you can jump into uh, advocacy subjects, it, it will benefit your patients and it will make you feel good. So with that, thanks Kevin and uh, have a great day. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John. To hear all other legislative conversations and all other episodes of the PQI podcast, you can find them online at encoda.org or by searching the PQI podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.